According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 12, once again. And if we're quick enough, this might be our last time in Luke chapter 12. We have uh, covered, and you say, yeah, right, because we've covered seven of the ten emphases. And yet, uh, emphasis eight, nine, and ten should go pretty quickly. Starting in verse 49. So Luke 12:49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But verse 50, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. So uh, Christ is eager for uh, some events there in verse 49. However, he understands that there is an order. There is a protocol plan that has to be followed according to the Father's perfect wisdom. And uh, that has to happen first in verse 50. So we're going to take some time to work our way through this here this morning. But before we do that, we need to pray. How about that? (laughs) I am eager to uh, start teaching the class, but we have to make sure we're in fellowship first. So let's make sure that each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this new day and we rejoice in your faithfulness towards us. We thank you for uh, all of the ways that your grace is magnified day by day, even moment by moment, Father. Great is thy faithfulness. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing on our time of study, uh, particularly, Father, as we examine the uh, uh, difficult passage of, of casting fire upon the earth. What is the baptism of fire all about? Bless us in these studies, Father. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke 12:49. I'm going to have a right hand twitch all day as I reach for the mouse that's not here. All right. My mouse died last night and I realized I don't have I didn't have AA batteries in the house. I'm so martyred. You know, we have all this persecution and affliction and the terrible things I'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ and the toughest thing for my Tuesday evening was my dead mouse and double-A batteries. All right. Emphasis number eight. This is point ten if you're keeping the overall outline. Emphasis number eight, Jesus' mission. His mission. Verses 49 through 53. We've covered, I read a couple of verses already before we prayed. Let's look at them again. I have come. This is the purpose clause. This is why he's here. And the biggest favor you can do yourself is to understand the purpose clauses of Scripture and to start to understand distinctions that are drawn and not just simply assume that you know why he came and say, well, he just he came to save us, right? He came to die on the cross. Let's understand there were multiple purposes at work, the purpose for his life, the purpose for his death. All right, that's the first distinction you want to make right there. Because this statement of I have come to cast fire on the earth uh, does not have anything to do with our redemption. 
uh, the uh, atonement, the work of Christ on the cross as our substitute, the bearing of the wrath of God and the administration of justice to the satisfaction of righteousness uh, has nothing to do with that. So what is it all about? And understand that it cannot transpire until other things happen first. So how I wish it were already kindled, but it can't be. Verse 50, but I have a baptism to undergo. That's the cross. Okay. So verse 49, the casting of fire on the earth, that's not the cross. That's something else, and we're going to study it here. Uh, but the cross has to precede it, the baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And then he says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Oh, that's a powerful verse. By the time we're done with the study today, you're going to be equipped to answer a lot of uh, mealy mouth, wishy-washy, pathetic approaches to Christianity, in particular the ones that like to mock uh, God's plan when they don't understand what God's plan is all about. And the idea of, well, can't we all just get along? Or, well, all the religions are basically the same and we want to cooperate and so on. And that's not what it's about. It's about division. Until such time as peace is enforced through the Davidic throne, uh, that is the victory of Jesus Christ in Armageddon. So uh, if you have friends or folks that love to mock different things, and peace, of course, is a big buzzword, because who could be against peace, right? Are you against peace? What, what kind of warmonger are you, right? Say, well, no, I'm not against peace. You know, I can visualize world peace. I just visualize world peace as a consequence of the glorious victory of Jesus Christ over Satan and the Antichrist at Armageddon. How about that? You know, and until that takes place, uh, all these, again, mealy mouth, kind of mamby-pamby, wuss-oriented kind of spears and the pruning hooks uh, folks, they need to reevaluate their scripture approach. Because uh, until Christ has the victory, it's not spears and the pruning hooks. It's the opposite. It's turn your beat your pruning hooks into spears and your plowshares into swords and prepare for the war because there's fighting to be done. I kind of like that verse. We'll deal with it. Uh, for from now on, and there's explanation beyond simply the statement about, no, not peace, rather division, then it gets amplified. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against son-in-law. Okay, That's actually a bit more verbose than the Matthew parallel, and that's all right. Uh, we can study the Matthew verse that reflects that, or this one, and see that the, the impact of what's being communicated here is not specific to the, the illustrations that are given, but the principle that's given that... Uh, the division is going to come down here 60-40, as it were. It's going to be a pretty close division when families are torn apart by the name of Jesus Christ. All right. So these are the verses of what we're dealing with. The parallel text to this, by the way, is material we've covered already back in Galilean ministry, episode 34. You know, when he sent out the 12, he, he summoned the 12. He named them as his apostles. The, uh, we did some uh, quite a bit of work on that chapter with the, the uh, dodecapostologue. Remember, we met up a word that had to do with a catalog of the 12 apostles. And uh, he sent out the 12. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36 is the parallel text. All right, let's get a look at the first principle we want to glean under this. Jesus is eager to initiate the baptism of fire. He says, I have come to cast fire 
upon the earth. And it, it is quite remarkable. I think this is a clue to some things that we'll discuss here in a moment. But coming to cast fire on the earth. He's eager to initiate the baptism of fire, but must first endure his own baptism of the cross. So he's eager, but it has to come at the proper time and it cannot come until the humiliation, the humility takes place first. This actually is what entitles him to break the seals. Remember the, the casting fire on the earth, the wrath of God that's thrown to this earth in the great tribulation of Israel that brings about Israel's repentance, brings about the Gentiles' judgment. Um, that's all sealed up with a seven-sealed scroll until someone worthy to break those seals does so. All right? And if you were with us in our Revelation series, and you know what I'm talking about there at the end of Revelation chapter 5, the first part of Revelation chapter 6. All right. So what is this casting fire upon the earth? And then you notice how closely it is linked to baptism in verse 50. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Well, let's back up a little bit. Remind ourselves what happened when Jesus began his ministry back in Matthew chapter 3. And he came to be baptized by John at the river Jordan. Another baptism venue, Matthew chapter 3, and specifically verse 11, but there's a whole context that surrounds that. And uh, if there's one thing that will derail us from finishing this chapter today, it'll be this, <laughs> because we may slow down and take some time with this, but... Um, when John was baptizing, remember John was baptizing saying, he was preaching, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand. The herald was announcing the arrival of the king, okay, of the Christ. And, and try, work with me now, try for this morning to forget what you know in your hindsight as 21st century American Christians that first and second advent are separate events divided by 2,000 years. Okay. Forget that you know that, because that is not certain from the standpoint of when it was announced and when it was unfolded. See, and this was the fundamental question that the Baptist wrestled with. Are you the chosen one or do we look for another? <clears throat> In other words, another person, another time. Is there a second advent? Uh, because so many, almost all of the Old Testament prophecies with respect to <clears throat> the coming of Christ were single package deals. They weren't differentiating between a first coming and a second coming. See? So forget for the moment that you know that uh, the Christ is going to be rejected. He's going to uh, die on the cross and ascend to His Father uh, for more than 2,000 years before He comes back at a second advent. Approach this from the standpoint <clears throat> that the forerunner is here. He announces the King. The King is here. And then evaluate the what-if scenarios of what if Israel had accepted their Messiah? What if the kingdom had come in? See, now the cross would still have taken place. Absolutely the cross would still have taken place. And I think that this passage today in Luke 12 makes that very clear because he says, I have come to cast fire on the earth. That 
the, the, the breaking of the seal and the wrath of God on the earth and the repentance of Israel, all those things conceivably could have taken place in 33 AD. Okay? Don't allow yourself and your hindsight to, uh, to rule that out. Because we know after the fact that's not the way it worked out does not mean that it could not have happened in God's plan and program at that time. So, anyway, <clears throat> here in Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, at hand. And uh, so then they would come out to be baptized and the baptism is very unique. It's not a baptism like we practice in the church. Very unique baptism as they were preparing their souls for the coming of their king. And as they were doing this, they were confessing their sins. And so uh, verse 6 of Matthew 3 says, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So uh, it's different from our baptism where we are reflecting the positional truth of being dead, buried, resurrected in Christ. Uh, Ecclesiastical church baptism is a a world of difference from the baptism of John here as he was preparing Israel and their stewardship for the arrival of their king. And uh, some Pharisees and and Sadducees were coming out. Of course, they're not even saved and they have no business being baptized, uh, not until they uh, demonstrate their salvation through the fruit of repentance and so forth. But then we get to, and also notice, he says in verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. Recognize that. That the judgment is that close. It is that pending. I mean, you know if there's trees that are slated to be chopped down, say, okay, they're going to be chopped down someday. But when the axe is right there, just waiting to be swung and, and chopped, then you know how imminent that is. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Imagery there, fire, wrath, God's discipline upon God's children in the stewardship of Israel application. We get our own fire, but it's not until we're raptured and we're at the judgment seat. And then we see fire applied to our wood, hay, and stubble. But here's the contrast. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. That was the Unique baptism of John as the herald in First Advent. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you, notice now, with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we talk about the uh, national baptism of Israel with the Holy Spirit. We talk about the baptism of fire. Both of these contexts are not pertaining to the church but pertaining to Israel, the prophet of Israel, John the Baptist, speaking to the nation of Israel at this time. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Keep in mind, this is the language of regathering, the language of threshing, the language of what we now understand to be second advent. But it's spoken here in the first advent. You say, well, was John confused? Well, why was he giving second advent prophecy at first advent? Because they were simply Advent prophecies until the kingdom was rejected and then the, the second, uh, second Advent becomes the necessity. So he will gather his weed into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, now the Old Testament foundation for the baptism of fire and also the baptism of the Spirit is to be found. Joel 2:28 and 29 is our Old Testament um, foundation 
the prophetic message given with respect to the coming Holy Spirit to the nation of Israel. And as you go through Joel 2, don't allow Peter's quotation of this passage to confuse you. Peter quoted this passage on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but the uh, fulfillment of this passage was not uh, complete at Pentecost. It's waiting second advent, and we've taught that before, and you should be, should be good with that. Because the, um, you will note in the um, development here of, of Joel 2 that this is a um, tribulational context, starting in verse 1, taking you all the way through verse 17, and then noticing the zeal of the Lord who delivers them, starting in verse 18, and the promise of the new wine and the satisfaction and the peace that follows that. And so, in terms of um, the context for verse 28, when it says, it will come about after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, you know that this has to be a second advent, millennial completion. That this is when the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female uh, servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Did that get fulfilled on Pentecost in 30 AD, 33 AD? No. The only people to receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD were 120 people in the upper room. And then gradually additional church age believers throughout uh, the world as the gospel spread that they went from being Old Testament believers to New Testament believers when they understood that uh, the, the Christ had been crucified and that eternal life had been provided for. At that point, they received the Holy Spirit. Of course, today, everyone receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. But Joel 2 is talking about a global outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And a global outpouring of the Holy Spirit demands that there's no more unbelievers left, first of all. And at the end of the tribulation, we know that. We know that all the unbelievers are removed. Millennial kingdom starts with 100% believers on the planet. So when the Holy Spirit is poured forth, it's worldwide. It's worldwide. And then Israel, your sons and daughters, from verse 28, Israel will have the prophetic office for their stewardship towards the Gentiles for that uh, entire millennial reign. Now over to Malachi then, Malachi 3, we have the promise of the coming fire. This is who uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum refers to as Malachi the great Italian prophet of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. And you'll note, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. And this is a wonderful play on words because the Hebrew here is Malachi. Malak is messenger. You put the I ending on the end of it, and it's mine, my messenger. So he says, behold, I'm going to send Malachi. I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So when John the Baptist arrives, he is Elijah who is to come. He's also Malachi who is to come. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold... He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? Now keep in mind, this we understand this is now second advent. 
not first advent, and yet he said he has come to cast fire on the earth. It could have been first advent. It could have been in the what-ifs of uh, the Father's grace eternal plan. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. See, you and I, our fire is awaiting the judgment seat when we will stand at the Bema after the rapture and have our wood, hay, and stubble burned away. But for Israel, their fire is going to come on the earth. Their fire is going to come during the tribulation. When Jesus Christ breaks those seals and fire is cast upon the earth, and we understand as we've gone through the tribulational study not that long ago. And the purpose, of course, wrath and judgment upon Gentiles, but also purification upon Israel, specifically Levi. Specifically the uh, purification of their priesthood. Okay, and Keep in mind, what's going to happen in between now and then? They're going to build a temple. They're going to build a corrupt temple. A temple without Christ. They're going to build a temple that Antichrist is going to defile. They're going to build uh, the what's commonly called the prophetic temple, the tribulational temple, the third temple. They're going to build a temple uh, that Antichrist will, first of all, they're going to sign the seal with the devil just for permission to build the dumb thing in the first place. And he's going to guarantee their peace and all of this. They're going to think, oh, this is great. Until three and a half years later, he betrays everything and sets himself up in that temple. Displays himself as being God. So, um, clearly, there's going to be some wrath of God in store to purify Levi in terms of their original purpose and their true purpose to glorify the Lord. That's what we see there. All right, so there is an Old Testament, uh, an Old Testament background for both the coming of the Holy Spirit and the application of fire and wrath. So, when John the Baptist then comes in Matthew chapter 3 and says, hey, Uh, I baptize with water for repentance, but after me is coming one who will baptize you, Israel, in the Holy Spirit and in fire. We understand the, uh, the background for his statements there. But before he can initiate these baptisms, he must endure his own baptism. So join me now in Mark chapter 10. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus already was baptized. Jesus was baptized twice. When you understand it. Because the baptism of the river Jordan, even though John administered it, was not the baptism of repentance, confessing his sins, preparing. Jesus wasn't preparing his heart for his own coming. Okay? Jesus uh, says it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. The baptism there was to complete the work of the herald where he was able to say, here he is. The herald's job was over at that point. He was saying, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, Christ is coming. As soon as he says, here he is, he baptizes him. The Holy Spirit descends, anointed with the Holy Spirit for his office as a prophet. All right. At that point, John's retired or should be. I'm, I'm stunned that he had any disciples after that. We find out years later, he still got disciples in Ephesus in different places that were still acquainted only with the baptism of John. So that's the first baptism. Jesus undertook the first baptism, which launched his his prophet ministry, launched three and a half years of public ministry throughout Israel on that glorious day 
don't think we even know what day it was, but on that glorious day when he came and the Holy Spirit descended as a, as a dove, the Father voiced his proclamation, this is my beloved Son, and who was I talking about with this Sunday night? Sid, maybe? When um, I had a conversation with somebody on Sunday night, it doesn't matter. It was Kendall. Anyway, this was the glorious moment when all of a sudden Satan knew that he had failed in the Bethlehem baby massacre. See, he had massacred all those babies in Bethlehem and didn't know. Never knew. That was with Doug. Okay. Never knew. Was this successful? Did I get him? Did I not get him? And, and of course, God was so faithful and they escaped down to Egypt and then they came back after Herod died. They lived in obscurity, not in Bethlehem, but in Nazareth of all places. And so for some 30 years or more, the, the devil never had a clue, never knew. Did I get him? Did I not get him? See, because that seed of the woman was supposed to crush the serpent's head and, and he was, you know, rather hoping that he had... Wiped that out when the when he massacred all the babies in Bethlehem. Until baptism of the River Jordan. Here comes the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Father out of heaven. My behold, my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, and with whom you uh, you fail to get him. Ha ha ha. <laughs> right? And the devil understand was the first thing that happened then. Drove him out to the wilderness, the, the temptation of the devil. But for all those years, he never knew whether he had succeeded or not in massacring the, the Bethlehem babies. So um, that was Jesus' first baptism. But he's got another baptism to undergo. And he calls the cross, he calls it a cup, and he calls it a baptism. And that's what we see here in Mark 10, verses 38 and 39. And of course, James and John think they're pretty hot stuff. And they... Uh, they get their mom in on the action and and try to uh, influence. I guess they're uh, they're ta- they're calling dibs on some uh, seating arrangements, is what they're doing here. And uh, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, "Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you." And he said to them, uh, "Well, what do you want me to do for you?" And they said, "Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory." And Jesus said to them, "You do not know what you're asking." You understand? Do you have any clue? If you're going to have that kind of reward and that kind of glory, do you know the the persecution and hell and grief and you know what you're going to go through here on earth to get to those kind of seats? <laughs> Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now that's a metaphor, but it's the cup of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on the sins of mankind. Or... To be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. He's talking about the cross. The cross is a baptism. And that's what he's talking about here in Luke 12 when he says he wants to cast fire on the earth, but he says, I have a baptism I must undergo first. The cross has to precede the crown. We've taught that many, many times. And of course, they said to him, Oh, we're able. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're able. We even have a hymn in our hymnal about this. Are ye able, said the Master, to be crucified with me? And then they replied, oh, yeah, yeah, we're able. Bunch of lying maggots. It's it's just pride that says they can. This is no different than Peter. Oh, Lord, I'm ready to die with you now. Christ said, yeah, Mr. Deny me three times before morning. Okay. 
He says, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. All right. So Jesus is eager to initiate the baptism of fire, but must first endure his own baptism of the cross. And of course, later on, they will indeed be baptized with his baptism. But by then, it's going to be something entirely new. By then, he's going to be resurrected, glorified, seated, ascended, sitting at his father's right hand. And when they're baptized into the church, oh, what a glorious day. They get to enter into his baptism by the grace of God that puts us there in positional truth. Oh, it's beautiful. All right. Peace on earth. Point B, second principle you want to glean out of this. Peace on earth is a valid Christmas theme. We're not going to mock it. We're not going to minimize it. We just need to put it in its right context. Peace on earth is a valid Christmas theme. The angels were singing it in Luke 2.14 when uh, the shepherds were summoned to the birth of Christ. But it must wait for the culmination of world division. Division must come first. Do not think that I came to bring peace. The angels were singing it in Luke 2.14. But not until the world division runs its course. We think the world's pretty divided now, right? Just wait. Just wait. We're still under the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit. Think what's going to happen when the when the value, the light value of Christ, the body of Christ, is removed from this world. Vocabulary for division is interesting, and I'm not going to take us through a lengthy study, but Dia Marizo and Dia Marismas, 1266 and 1267. And they're the terms that are employed here in these verses, both the verb and the noun. The first one, Dia Marizo. I don't have an underline, I've got a dead mouse. Let's see if I can do it this way. Here we go. Oh, that's nasty. I don't know who designed this little touchpad for laptops, but they, um, I don't know, Christ died for them, but they, uh, anyway, diamarizo, the first one is a verb, 1266, and then diamarizmos is a noun, uh, 1267, and then they come from their compound verbs, the dia prefix, uh, built on the uh, the verb itself, and that's what you have with Marizo 3307 and Muras 3313. And the neat thing about Muras uh, about part being, is is it's a it's a beautiful term that applies to the church. Each one of us is a member of the church. We're a member of His body, and we have a part to play, all put together in that. And so we shouldn't be driving divisions between believers because we're all part of one body. And yet, there has to be a division between the saved and the lost. There has to be a division between Christ and Belial. What harmony is there? What concord is there? What fellowship is there with light and darkness? With uh, Christ and Belial? See. That division has to take place, even if it takes place within the context of earthly families. And quite often it does. So the vocabulary there is, is rather interesting, and we'll, 
we're not going to go through a deep study on it, but there it is if you want to pursue that yourself. The, um, so put peace in the right perspective. See, because if, if you just leave yourself with the, uh, the evangel song of Luke 2.14 and think, oh, well, peace on earth, goodwill to man. <laughs> well, uh, a few things happened after that event, like the national rejection of the Christ. How about that? Okay. Um, the intensified stage of the angelic conflict as it is now unfolding in the stewardship of the bride of Christ. We are in that intensified stage. We are in the age, not of peace, the age of division. Let's understand that. And that age of division will continue after the church is raptured and it will be even intensified again towards Israel in the tribulation. You know, it's interesting. Right now, all the anti-Semitism in the world is directed against Israel um, how do I phrase this? And it's, 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 anti-Semitic, it's anti-Semitism, always has been, always is, but it's not driven by, it's not also anti-Christ. You see, um, when you think about, uh, well, Muslim hostility in the world today, and it's a good illustration because they hate both Jews and Christians, and so it's a good, good way to illustrate. And they hate Jews. That's one aspect. And they hate Christ. There's another aspect. Okay, Understand, though, what happens in the tribulation? Because the church is gone. And then Jews start getting saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now we have a combined hatred for Israel combined with a hatred for Christ. Because the 144,000 and the faithful remnant will not only be objects of Jewish hatred, but they're proclaiming the name of Christ. So they're going to be subject to Christ hatred as well. And we'll have a blending of anti-Semitism and anti-Christian, anti-Christ hatred. It's going to be an interesting time. We, of course, won't be paying attention to it because we'll be getting dressed for our wedding and and, uh, enjoying the things up there. World division will not be exhibited on a national basis, but household by household Internally, world division will not be exhibited on a national basis, but on a household by household basis internally. And that's what gets expanded here in verses 52 and 53. You know, it doesn't say that the United States is against Canada and Canada is against Mexico or Spain's against France or anything like that. The father's against his son, a mother's against her daughter. And even uh, marriage ties don't help because the in-laws are against the in-laws. And it, uh, and it appears to be generational uh, in a lot of respects. And it does not seem to matter whether it's by birth or by marriage. There is the hostility between the generations. And I do think that the the illustrations here are representative rather than specific. And so I've known there have been folks that have really tried to uh, make an issue out of the specific relationships that are mentioned here. Problem with that is that it's a, it's a difference with the ones that are mentioned over in Matthew, Matthew, for example, 
I didn't plan on looking there, but in Matthew um, chapter 10, I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, it doesn't mention a son-in-law against his father-in-law. Why, why did it leave that out? And then it also mentions a man's enemies would be the members of his household. See, I think Jesus taught this Bible class a number of different times. He taught it as early as, as in the Galilean ministry, and he taught it later on in the last Judean and Priam ministry. He probably taught it repeatedly between this point and the cross. And whichever illustrations he chose um, may be changed from event to event, but the principle is still the same. A man's enemies would be the members of his own household. So what happens when you have an earthly family relationship and division because of the name of Christ? Division because of the name of Christ. And, and I find that very remarkable when it occurs. Um, for example, a fellow here not too long ago came to Christ and his biggest concern is, oh my goodness, what am I going to tell my wife? What is she going to think about this change in me? See, because she's not regenerate. What's she going to think about that? Well, first thing you got to do with some enthusiasm and zeal and excitement is is get her saved too. How about that? <laughs> right? Give her the gospel. Tell her about eternal life and the redemption of her soul. And uh, you know, if you lead her to Christ, praise the Lord. If not, you're going to have a mixed marriage. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. You know, and a lot of those uh, husbands of believer, wives and unbeliever, or vice versa and whatnot, maybe it didn't start that way. Maybe they were both unbelievers when they got married and then someone gets saved. Then what are you, what are you left with? Anyway, that's all out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But think about what divides earthly families and uh, how in, uh, in a lot of cases, a lot of cases here, where folks came to Christ and... There's there's warfare now. There's it, they just don't understand it, and it's a it's the division. And we can describe it to them, but they don't have a capacity to understand why, in their foolish, darkened minds, that schism is there. They just think that well, you know, you're now some kind of a Bible thumping zealot freak kind of you know. Um, they don't understand. I also have observed here's something. Here's another thought for you. I mean, it's one thing between. Christianity and paganism, that's, that's kind of the obvious thing. But have you also noticed there are divisions within what would ostensibly be Christian families, right? They have the Christian label. But how, uh, how many, and, and not to pick on Roman Catholicism, but any, but they're pretty big for it. If you abandon Rome, do you know what a traitor you are? And what happened? <laughs> you got saved. <laughs> you got saved by grace through faith. You now have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's a disconnect. There's a division there. Why is there a division there? See? Or Mormonism. or you know, And, and I think when that division pops up, Doug talks about his Mormon connections with his family and so forth, I think that right there is a huge testimony to the non-Christian reality of that religion. Because when someone actually places faith in Christ, receives eternal life, becomes born again, now all of a sudden there's a dia marismas. There's a division. 
You're looked at by that group you left behind as outcast, traitor. Well, why is that? All you did was be transferred from the dominion of darkness to the, to the, you know, to the dominion of light, the kingdom of His beloved Son. When you went from darkness to light, was that not real? So, what are these folks back here, what are they pursuing? Even though they may profess Christ, how are they professing Christ? Is it by grace through faith? Or is it a cultural aspect? Well, I was born into, I'm Christian because I was born Christian. Born into a Christian family. See, that's what we encounter in, in the Philippines all the time. We encounter it in Ukraine all the time. Well, I was born into an Orthodox family. That's, that's what I am. I'm Orthodox. I'm Christian. Or I'm Catholic. I'm Christian. That's what I was born into. I was sprinkled. I was baptized or what have you. Hmm. So when the schism occurs, members of a family, father and son, mother and daughter, in-law and in-law, and those divisions are very real, what does that testify to? That it testifies to the reality of life on the one hand and death on the other. So world division. World division. And I think it's, it's remarkable how we, that's exhibited in the current church age and it's going to be exhibited again in the uh, coming dispensation of uh, Israel, age of tribulation. All right, emphasis number nine, perception. Emphasis number nine is perception. All right, we took 43 minutes for emphasis number eight. We have 17 minutes left for emphasis numbers nine and ten. And we may not get through them all, but there is no class next week. And so there will be a two-week break. And I had kind of thought that, you know, if we uh, knock these all out in one session, then a two-week break, we can come back to uh, chapter 13 in a couple of weeks. If not, then we'll come back again to chapter 12 in a couple of weeks. Perception, verses 54 through 56. This has a parallel we've covered already. Galilean ministry, episode 45. And it's interesting to see how these parallels come in from the Galilean ministry, episode 34. Later on, Galilean ministry, episode 45. When we get to the 10th emphasis, we've got to back all the way back up to Galilean ministry, episode number 17, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going from uh, 34 to 45 to 17. Okay, Just episodes in the Galilean ministry. 34, 45, 17. And they're all coming as reviews to the 12 disciples, but new information for the new disciples in an interesting, uh, in an interesting way. All right? So verses 54 through 56. He was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. Much of their rain coming off the Mediterranean. Uh, and when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, you know, coming out of the deserts of uh, Sinai and whatnot. Okay, the wilderness of Judea. It will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. So, what's wrong with being a meteorologist? <laughs> Is there anything wrong with weather forecasting? He calls them hypocrites. And here's why. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and sky. But why do you not analyze the present time? Why do you not analyze the present time? Why do you spend so much time, energy, effort um, predicting things that you're not in charge of anyway? 
Secular wisdom develops comprehensive temporal life forecasts. This is, I mean, we, this is our life, isn't it? This is our culture. Secular wisdom develops comprehensive, and it's not just weather either, comprehensive temporal life forecasts. I mean, it's everything we live in is shaped by people that are studying trends and predicting for what's happening down the road. Such as financial markets, say, futures, uh, commodities, bonds, stocks, uh, currency exchanges, all kinds of things in financial markets, including uh, complete and total blithering idiots that ought to know better, but seem to be in charge these days. See. <laughs> Practices that didn't work in the 20s, didn't work in the 30s, and here we're going to try them again. Well, they're going to work this time. Kind of thought that Keynesian economics was dead. Kind of thought that Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan proved how insane uh, John Maynard Keynes and his whole economic philosophy was. Thought that the, uh, the battle between Keynes and Hayek was over. Hayek wins. The Austrian school is right, and the Keynesian economic model is a disaster every time it's tried. But here we go again. We're going we're gonna to do Keynes times four. In any event. <laughs> Goodness, where did that come from? <laughs> How about weather forecasts? Weather forecasts, here's more insanity for you. Not just, you know, the local weather of what's going to happen in the next 10 days, but how about the global climate and what's going to happen in the next 100 years? You know, global warming, climate change, Al Gore, fraud, okay? Demographic studies. You realize the demographic studies, and there's all kinds of, you know, there's, if you read, if you read some of the statistics, uh, there's some gloomy things down the road 50 years from now just based on reproduction or lack thereof in the West, see, you know, Celia's doing her part, but uh, as a trend, as a trend, Western nations are pathetic as a matter of uh, the, the fertility statistics as opposed to the Muslim nations and their fertility statistics. Actuarial statistics, etc. All of this. Our culture is driven by this. Even in terms of, um, you know, I'll use my own passion. They're just as guilty. Baseball. When do they start scouting these players? For the major leagues. College, high school, before high school. Uh, they got talent scouts down. I mean, they're tracking these kids in, in T-ball. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe not quite that bad, but you know they're watching the uh, the major leagues aren't, but the colleges are. The colleges are watching the high school and younger. The high school kids, the high school scouts are looking at the junior high and grade school kids. You bet they are. And evaluating their potential. Well, divine wisdom develops an accurate dispensational focus. We should evaluate the day and age in which we live. Why do you not analyze the present time? Why do you not analyze the present time? 
I love that. That needs to go over that, that, that not just on a refrigerator. That, that needs to go on the on the cornerstone of the new church building. How about that? That needs to be a motto for training men for ministry. We better understand the day and age in which we live. We better understand the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Why do you not analyze the present time? Do you know the stewardship you're under? Do you know what's, what you're accountable for? Do you understand your priestly function, your ambassadorial function, your soldier function? Are you operating consistently with the revealed scripture for your dispensation? See, or are you uh, confusing Old Testament versus New Testament? Are you laying claim to Abrahamic uh, Jewish blessings for the dispensation of Israel? Are you claiming, uh, there's a bunch of people out there trying to claim uh, uh, Noahic covenant blessings or Edenic covenant blessings. See, (laughs) that gets me in trouble too when I ask people about that. And say, on what basis do you take the Edenic covenant as yours? On what basis do you take the Noahic covenant as yours? On what basis do you take the Mosaic covenant as yours? On what basis do you take the Davidic covenant as yours? Who do you think you are anyway? And why? I mean, if you're going to claim the Davidic covenant, well then, you're in the wrong spot. Go to the land grant. Well, no one's eager to go live in Israel right now. There's kind of violence and danger. And you know. <laughs> Well, are you going to claim it or not? I'm not sure what tribe you belong to, you Gentile dog. But if you're going to claim the Jewish blessings, be, be, be consistent. See. Or how about folks that are bringing in the kingdom? There's some confusion there. Do you understand the day and age in which you live? In the last days, apostasy will come. We're not bringing in the kingdom. We're the faithful remnant watching the apostasy explode all around us. So divine wisdom develops an accurate dispensational focus. That's why I'm convinced if uh, the Lord allows this reader to go into production, that this uh, ABC reader on the planet of God is just going to explode. People are going to take that and pass it around. It's going to go nationwide, worldwide. I I really believe it's going to get believers excited about the day and age in which we live. Because if you don't, you're a hypocrite. Viewing life exclusively through human viewpoint is hypocritical. You can, you can look at life in temporal life terms, absolutely. Look at life in secular with secular lenses, sure. Check out the weather forecast. Check out the business forecast. You know, this passage isn't telling you to be stupid about what you do with your money and say, oh, well, you know, I can't, I can't uh, evaluate futures markets or I can't watch the weather pastor said i can't look at the weather forecast pastor didn't say that if you're going to have if you're going to engage in uh temporal life forecasts have fun but understand that you're not simply a temporal being you are an eternal being you are an eternal being you received eternal life the moment you placed your faith in christ You have a heavenly citizenship. You have a heavenly economy to be participating in. So don't just look at life exclusively through the human viewpoint. See, uh, we talk about this too with our kids as they're growing up, as they're dating, as they're, you know, looking at (coughs) girls or the girls are have boys looking at them or whatever else is happening, right? 
But we talk about that. What's the what, inner beauty, outer beauty? What's the difference? Understand it for what it is. Okay. Which one's more important? Actually, which one's biblical? Which one doesn't matter? Okay. When it comes down to it. Try telling them it doesn't matter. And they're like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's the inner beauty that matters. It's the inner beauty that lasts. It's the inner beauty that only grows more and more beautiful as the years go by. Whatever else happens to the outer man that perishes. Okay. Some kind of sirens going on. Who knows? Maybe Austin's burning down. Wouldn't that be great? Emphasis number 10, reconciliation. Emphasis number 10 is reconciliation. This is parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. We covered at some length. Back to Matthew 10, 25 and 26. We won't look there, but let's just see the passage here. Why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? Why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Now, this is an interesting situation here because as he's speaking to the the audience, the assumption behind these verses is that the person is, is guilty. The person is legitimately a debtor. He is clearly in the wrong. And when he gets to the judge... The conviction is a foreordained conclusion. And the uh, throwing into prison is, uh, is an interesting expression because under Roman law, typically you were simply sold into slavery. That was the uh, until your debts were paid off. So how do you reconcile? And why are you competent to reconcile? And on what basis, on what conceivable basis do you have to reconcile. Well, with divine viewpoint, you're able to. Divine viewpoint equips believers to achieve temporal reconciliation. You realize when he says, why are you not on your own initiative doing this? It's a rebuke. They should be doing this. They absolutely should be doing this. And with divine viewpoint, they are equipped to do so. They're equipped to do so and their debtor or their, their creditor is equipped to do so if they also will think in terms of divine viewpoint. If they truly are walking in the light and fulfilling Mosaic law, then uh, there's provision for debts, particularly debts that can't be paid. They're called forgiven. (laughs) It's called year of jubilee. It's called every seven years the debt's being removed, and then every 50 years after the seventh jubilee, you have the, the double... 49 and 50 year, back-to-back years of the uh, relinquishing of all debts. And to do so for the glory of Yahweh, for the glory of the inheritance, as all Yahweh, as all Israel belongs to the Lord anyway, believers with divine viewpoint ought to be able to achieve temporal reconciliation, no matter what. No matter what. Out-of-court settlements are always preferable. (laughs) Okay? Using today's language. 
out-of-court settlements. Because if it goes to trial, you're doomed. Absolutely doomed. And, uh, of course, the terminology here, the magistrates and the officers in prison, the language here is, uh, is Gentile in its approach, is Roman in its understanding. Um, understand that, that uh, <laughs> the, um, well, I won't get into the history. I'm almost out of time on this. But the idea that Israel, they're the covenant nation. They're the stewards of the truth. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They should be able to uh, preach the, the Hebrew Scriptures to the Romans, to all the Gentiles around them. And instead, they're going to put themselves under Roman sovereignty and submit to the court proceedings and sell a Jewish brother into Roman bondage. And uh, there's no reason for that. And by the way, there is a church parallel to this. Similar admonitions are even more applicable to the body of Christ in the church age. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-8. through 8. Similar admonitions are even more applicable for the church. More so than law. Now, the Jews under law, with Old Testament Scriptures, should have been rightly equipped to handle their own affairs. And to do so in a manner that gave glory to Yahweh. The church even more so. The church even more so because our training is in preparation for a much higher eternal position. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? See, now this is a different context than Israel going before Gentiles, but it's a similar application. Why are we going to go to a secular court suing our brother? For do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You realize that? We're being equipped to run this place? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Of all the human stewardships, Gentiles, Israel... It's the the body of Christ, the the bride, the church, is the one, this royal family of God that will judge the angelic realm. How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it's already a defeat for you. You lost before the case was even tried. You've you've already lost. It's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Just take the temporal life defrauding and don't bring discredit to the name of Christ. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. You become participants in the whole process. Anyway, much more teaching on that. If you want, uh, the notes are on the website from our 1 Corinthians series. Went through that at great length in chapter 6. All right. 1101. Not bad. No class next week. Uh, No prayer meeting next week either. Uh, Next week is VBS week. So uh, come for that. Take part in those blessings. But no ladies prayer and no 
uh, early prayer, no uh, poimenike and no life of Christ class for next week. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.